When King Charles II asked John Owen, who is the greatest Puritan theologian of them all, why he, an immensely educated Oxford scholar, would go to sit underneath the preaching of an uneducated country pastor, Owen replied, quote, I would willingly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching men's hearts. The tinker, tinker was a term used back then for a metal worker who forged and fixed pots and pans and other metal objects. The tinker to which Owen referred was John Bunyan. And Owen spoke better than he knew. It is without question that God used Bunyan to touch more hearts than any other man who has ever spoken the English language. Now that is a bold claim, but it is one I make without the slightest hint of hyperbole or embarrassment, and it is not because of his skills in preaching, impressive though they were. It is because John Bunyan wrote a book that until recently, until about a decade ago, has sold more copies than any other book outside of the Bible in the history of the published word. The Pilgrim's Progress has, to date, been translated into over 200 languages, and it has followed the Bible into almost every land. In fact, in 1986, the Chinese government authorized the publication of 200,000 copies as an example of Western culture. They sold out in three days. Characters and events from the Pilgrim's Progress have influenced some of the greatest writers of British and American literature, from Rudyard Kipling to Louisa May Alcott. George Bernard Shaw is not alone in his admiration, although perhaps in his exaggeration of Bunyan, whom he refers to as, quote, the greatest English dramatizer of life and better than Shakespeare. Now, we may not agree necessarily with his assessment, but it goes to show you what an impact Bunyan has had upon not only the church at large, but upon English literature in general. I first encountered John Bunyan in seminary during a course on Baptist history, and in one particular assignment, we were instructed to read a work of classic Baptist literature at least a century old. And for no other reason than the ease of his prose, John Bunyan remains to this day eminently readable, prose which I found far more accessible than, say, Andrew Fuller, and thus far more likely for me to complete by the deadline, I selected John Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is Bunyan's own account of his conversion and of his struggle for assurance. I hated it. This man is insane, I thought. He clearly suffers from some kind of obsessive-compulsive psychosis. But the truth is, it was not Bunyan's alleged anxiety disorder which troubled me. It was that the struggle which Bunyan described was too close to home. I spent most of my seminary career in my own slew of despond, struggling with crippling doubts, fighting for faith, Yet all the while it seemed sinking ever deeper into the mire. A few years later, I tried to read The Pilgrim's Progress, but had a similarly negative reaction. In the manner of Bunyan himself, I was debilitated by the scene not too far into the book 
where Christian is in the house of interpreter and he has shown the man in the iron cage who represents Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal and afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought for it with tears, writes Hebrews 12, 16, and 17. So I traveled no further with Christian down the straight and narrow path. By God's grace, over the next several years, I found confidence and assurance in Christ, helped largely by the same Reformation doctrines which aided Bunyan in his own quest for assurance. And so a few years ago, I picked up the Pilgrim's Progress and I tried it again. And this time, I had a completely different reaction. I was absolutely enthralled and I was deeply encouraged. It was a masterpiece of pastoral theology. In it, Bunyan pictures the Christian life in the form of an allegory. And as I viewed my own spiritual pilgrimage, now in hindsight and retrospect, I found my own journey mirrored largely in the journey of Christian, and by extension in the journey of Bunyan, because Christian is an autobiographical character. Furthermore, it not only related my own experience, but that of so many others that I've counseled over now more than 10 years in pastoral ministry. Every time I pick up the Pilgrim's Progress, I find it uncanny how every page rings true. I find myself saying, yes, that's exactly what it was like. I remember the misery of the slough or the swamp of despond. I remember walking through the house of interpreter, the scriptures, for the very first time and being both profoundly encouraged and profoundly disturbed. I remember what it was like when at the foot of the cross the burden fell from off my back and tumbled down and rolled into the tomb never to be seen again. But it not only has value in retrospect, it not only helps you make sense of what you have already experienced, it helps you persevere for what is to come on your own pilgrimage, on your own journey. As you proceed through life, having read the book, you will find yourself saying, this is exactly what Christian went through in the valley of the shadow of death. This is exactly what happened to Christian and faithful in Vanity Fair. This is just like when Christian and Hopeful were chained in Doubting Castle in the dungeon down there, prisoners of the giant despair. So if this morning accomplishes nothing more than to provoke your interest and to incite you to read the Pilgrim's Progress, then I will count our time together this morning as having been well spent. Take up and read the Pilgrim's Progress. So, who is the tinker? And why does he matter for the church today? What can we learn from his life and from his legacy, preserved for us not only in his written works, especially in his magnum opus, The Pilgrim's Progress, but preserved for us in the various biographical accounts which have come down through church history? On this Reformation Day 2018, I'd like to tell you the story of John Bunyan, and then I'm going to draw out for us six lessons which will help us, like Christian in Bunyan's story, to persevere down that straight and narrow path 
across the river of death and enter with great joy into the celestial city. Bunyan scholar Christopher Hill wrote that John Bunyan lived during, quote, the most turbulent, seditious, and factious 60 years in recorded English history. That's quite a claim because England's been around for a long time. Bunyan was born in November of 1628 during the reign of King Charles I, who was the son of James I, the famed King James, whose name graces the Bible. Bunyan was born in Elstow near Bedford in south-central England. Bedford was, quote, a sleepy country town of about 2,000 people, and its principal industry was lace-making, which had been introduced by French Protestant refugees. Bunyan's father was a tinker by trade, a trade which did not pay well at all, and Bunyan would accompany him from a very early age, from town to town, um, pushing his father's wheelbarrow filled with his father's wares. Bunyan grew up in abject poverty, as did so many other of the townsfolk. Bunyan was always a fearful child, writing that his childhood was filled with fearful dreams and thoughts of the day of judgment. He was educated long enough to learn to read and write, but not much more. His astounding literary ability then can only be attributed to a prodigious gift of God's grace. His mother died when he was 16 years old, followed by his sister only two weeks later. Only a month after that, Bunyan's father remarried, and Bunyan soon left home. The elder Bunyan was not a godly man, and John was not raised in a Christian home. In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan writes that his father did not, quote, learn me to speak without his wicked way of swearing, end quote. Some of you can relate. In 1642, when Bunyan was 13 years old, civil war erupted in England. Scotland revolted against King Charles I, who had made the mistake of meddling in the Scottish church by imposing episcopal authority in the Book of Common Prayer upon the Scottish Presbyterians. And so in 1638, the Scottish Covenanters declared their ecclesiastical independence from England. They raised an army and they marched south. Charles was forced to call a parliament, but he soon dissolved it. But when Scotland marched on England, he was forced to call another parliament, and this parliament quickly moved to ensure that Charles could not dissolve it again. And this set the stage for a civil war between the king's army and the parliamentary forces, which were led by Oliver Cromwell. Just prior to his 16th birthday, Bunyan enlisted in the parliamentary army, and he was stationed 15 miles from Bedford. And though he did not see much action in the conflict, he does recall one close call. He says, when I was a soldier, I, with others, was drawn out to go to such a place and besiege it. But when I was just ready to go, one of the company desired to go in my place, to which, when I had consented, he took my place. And coming to the siege, as he stood sentinel, he was shot in the head with a musket bullet and died. This, along with the short lifespan of all English countrymen in Bunyan's age caused him to reflect upon his own mortality and of what stood on the other side of death. 
The parliamentary army won victory in June of 1645, and the Civil War was effectively ended. In 1649, the House of Commons tried and executed King Charles I. They abolished the House of Lords, and they proclaimed Oliver Cromwell Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England. In 1649, at the age of 20, John Bunyan married. The name of his first wife is unknown to us, but her effect upon Bunyan was immense. Her father was a Puritan, as was she. Why she married the unconverted and admittedly profane John Bunyan is a mystery, but she did. And a year later, she gave birth to their first child, whose name was Mary, and she was born blind. And John and Mary had a very, very special relationship. She became the apple of his eye. Though the Bunyans were so poor that according to Bunyan, they had neither a dish nor a spoon betwixt us, they did possess two books which his wife had brought into the marriage as a dowry from her father. One was Arthur Dent's The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven, and the other was Lewis Bailey's The Practice of Piety. Both were Puritan works. Both were thoroughly evangelical. They were filled with the gospel, and both had a tremendous effect upon the young Bunyan. He and his wife would read them together at night, and Bunyan remarks that, though they did not reach my heart so as to awaken it, they did yet begin within me some desires to religion. What these books did for Bunyan was to convince him of his sin and of his need of righteousness. And so Bunyan set out to turn over a new leaf. He set out to reform his life. Much like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress who turned aside from the path of the gospel upon which evangelist had set him to try to have his burden removed by Mr. Legality who dwells in the town of morality, so Bunyan set out to become religious. He began to attend church twice every Sunday and he even amazed his neighbors with this sudden change of life. Bunyan would develop a superstitious regard for the clergy and the high church liturgy of the Church of England, and these things availed for a time to assuage his guilt, until one Sunday, when the local parson, a man named Christopher Hall, preached a sermon on keeping the Sabbath day holy, and Bunyan was struck with conviction over the way he regularly profaned the Lord's Day which was a huge no-no in Puritan England. Bunyan managed to shake off the conviction for a time until one Sunday when he was in the middle of a game of sport. He writes that a voice did suddenly dart from heaven into my soul, which said, Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? This event... The deadly combination of conviction of the Word and the Spirit sent Bunyan into an existential tailspin. For a time, he vacillated between the fear of hell and reckless sin, alternately attempting to restrain his unregenerate flesh and giving himself over to unabandoned iniquity. Bunyan writes that he went on to sin with great greediness of mind until one day when he was rebuked by a woman of ill repute. In other words, he was rebuked by a prostitute. 
Because of his unparalleled swearing and cursing, the woman told him that she feared he was going to corrupt all the youth of the town. And so Bunyan was so ashamed to have to be reprimanded by a prostitute that he resolved that he was from this moment on going to read his Bible and live a moral life. So he said, I did set the commandments before me for my way to heaven. I thought I pleased God as well as any man in England. For a year this continued, yet Bunyan knew deep within that he was but a poor, painted hypocrite who loved to be talked of as one who was truly godly. One day as John was working in Bedford, he happened upon three or four women sitting in the sunshine at a cottage door. They were making lace and they were talking with one another about the things of God. Bunyan's ears perked up. He was intrigued and he drew closer because he fancied himself a brisk talker in matters of religion. Yet as he listened in, Bunyan realized that they spoke of a reality that he knew nothing of. For their talk was about a new birth, the work of God upon their hearts. And listen, they spoke as if joy did make them speak. Bunyan knew deep within that he did not possess what these women possessed. And this conversation changed the course of Bunyan's life. From that moment, he writes, he became, his thoughts became fixed upon eternity and he began to read the Bible with new eyes. In fact, Bunyan writes, I was never out of the Bible either by reading or by meditation, still crying out to God that I might know the truth and the way to heaven and glory. <clears throat> The women were members of a separatist church in Bedford, which was led by a man named John Gifford. This Bedford church was a typical 17th century Puritan church. It was Calvinistic and Congregationalist. It emphasized evangelical grace and faith and holiness of life. The women invited Bunyan to their church, and they introduced him to their pastor, to John Gifford, who is represented in Pilgrim's Progress in the character of the evangelist who points Christian to the wicked gate. That's exactly what Gifford did for Bunyan. Bunyan was constantly under Gifford's preaching in church and under his teaching in his home. And it was Gifford that taught Bunyan the word of God and showed him the way of salvation. It's impossible to discern the precise moment of Bunyan's conversion. Something Dramatic happened that day in Bedford when Bunyan heard the women conversing about the new birth. Every Sunday, John Gifford would point Bunyan to Christ, and every Sunday, Bunyan would go where Gifford pointed. He would go to Jesus, he would go to the Word, he would go to the Gospel. But then as he would leave the church, the doubts would assail his heart and his mind again, and Bunyan would endure long periods of intense spiritual anguish where he would be convinced that he was Esau in Hebrews chapter 12. He was a reprobate. He was rejected by God. He had gone too far. He was beyond hope. For a couple of years, Bunyan endured what he called the battle of the texts, alternating between faith and fear between confidence and despair, depending upon which biblical passage took hold upon his heart. One day he would hear a sermon on the love of God for sinners. 
And he would come away saying, now was my heart filled full of comfort and hope. And now I could believe that my sin should be forgiven me. Yea, I was now so taken with the love and mercy of God that I remember I could not tell how to contain till I got home. I thought I could have spoken of his love and of his mercy to me even to the very crows that sat upon the plowed fields before me. Another day he would read Hebrews 12, 17 about Esau selling his birthright and being rejected and Bunyan would become convinced that he had committed the unpardonable sin. These words, he wrote, were like, or were to my soul like fetters of brass to my legs. Bunyan's soul was filled with the tumult of battle between faith and doubt, between righteousness and temptation, such that Bunyan even wondered to himself whether he was possessed of the devil. Back and forth, back and forth, went Bunyan's soul, tossed to and fro like a ship in the storm. After a couple of years of this torment, God rescued Bunyan from his despair. Three significant events are of particular importance. The first happened in a church service in the Bedford Church. He says, but one day as I was meeting, I was in a meeting of God's people full of sadness and terror, these words did with great power suddenly break in upon me. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. Three times together. And oh, methought that every word was a mighty word unto me. It broke my heart and filled me with joy. From that moment on, writes Bunyan, the sufficiency of God's grace prevailed with peace and joy, and the word of the law and wrath began to give way to the word of life and grace. And though this breakthrough did not cure altogether Bunyan's struggles, from that point on, hope began to outweigh despair. On another occasion, Bunyan was walking through a field, Once again, struggling with doubts over the state of his soul when these words came to him, Thy righteousness is in heaven. Bunyan writes, And I thought with all that I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there I say was my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants, that is, He lacks my righteousness, for that was just before Him in heaven. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs. Indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now I also went home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, I thought, Christ, there was nothing but Christ that was before my eyes. In other words, Bunyan realized that his own righteousness was not what rendered him acceptable before God. But rather, it was on account of the perfect righteousness of Christ in heaven that God justified him freely through faith. And it is not coincidental that around the same time that this event happened, his pastor had given to him a copy of Luther's commentary on the Galatians. John Bunyan was a child of the Reformation. 
Finally, one day, sitting by a fire, Bunyan felt an irresistible urge within his heart say, I must arise and go to Jesus. At this, wrote Bunyan, my former darkness fled away, and the blessed things of heaven were set within my view. Bunyan went straight home and told his wife with deep joy, Oh, now I know. I know. Bunyan was baptized and joined the Bedford Church in 1655, which by now had come to Baptist convictions. And soon he began preaching. His mentor, John Gifford, died that same year and was replaced by a man named John Burton, who was frequently ill. The church at Bedford recognized a certain gift in Bunyan, and he was often asked to fill the Bedford pulpit, and soon Bunyan was preaching all over the countryside. Bunyan would preach as if his life and his faith and his very soul depended upon it. And in a sense, it did. For after I had been about five or six years awakened, Bunyan writes, God had counted me worthy to understand something of his will in his holy and blessed word. And he had given me utterance in some measure to express what I saw to others. I preached what I felt what I smartingly did feel. His struggles with fear and guilt and doubt continued off and on for the first two years of his preaching, sometimes assaulting him to the very door of the pulpit. Yet Bunyan preached on, declaring the same gospel to others that he tried desperately to cling to himself. And in time, the grace of the gospel settled upon his soul and soon his preaching began to take on a flavor of grace and of confidence and of joy that would mark his ministry for the rest of his days. It was in those early years that Bunyan found himself caught up in a number of doctrinal controversies during this era of religious toleration that marked the Cromwellian government. These debates, particularly with the Quakers... It's interesting when you read back in English history, we don't think of the Quakers as being debaters, uh, but they were. They were vociferous debaters, and Bunyan was right in the middle of it. These debates forced Bunyan to hone his theological skills and his ability to write with doctrinal precision. In short, these debates made Bunyan not only a preacher, they made him a theologian. And before long, Bunyan was famous both as a preacher and as a fierce defender of the Reformed faith as it was found in its early English Puritan Baptist version. Well, Oliver Cromwell died in 1658 and his son, Richard, succeeded him as Lord Protector of England. But Richard Cromwell was not as competent a ruler as his father and his reign lasted only a few months And on May 8, 1660, Parliament proclaimed Charles II king, and England entered into the period known as the Restoration. It was not a good time for English separatists, like the Baptists, like Bunyan. In 1662, the Act of Uniformity was passed, which required ordination by an Anglican bishop, and it required the use of the Book of Common Prayer in English churches. And in August of 1662, 2,000 Puritans were forced out, expelled from their churches. The Bedford Church, Bunyan's Church, was no longer allowed use of the local parish church building. 
1660, their pastor, John Burton, died. Around this same time, in 1658, Bunyan's first wife died. Bunyan was left a widower with four children under the age of ten, one of whom, Mary, his eldest, was blind. So the following year, Bunyan remarried a woman named Elizabeth. He was 31, she was 18. She proved to be a godsend for Bunyan, as will become clear momentarily. On November the 12th, 1660, John Bunyan was scheduled to preach in Bedfordshire. A friend informed him that there was a warrant issued for his arrest, charging him with not attending the local Anglican church and for preaching without a license. His friend urged him not to preach that day, but Bunyan refused to remove or to reschedule the service. And so when the time of worship arrived, Bunyan did what he was called to do. He opened up in prayer, and he began to preach. And the local constable soon arrived and arrested him. And when Bunyan stood before the local magistrate, magistrate, he was offered a way out. He was told that if he would agree not to preach anymore... He could go home. He could go home to his wife. He could go home to his children. He could go home to Mary. In that moment, Bunyan felt that he was, quote, as a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet he said, I must do it. I must do it. Bunyan knew that this was his Mark 8.36 moment. This was the moment when he was faced with the choice of gaining the world and forfeiting his soul or remaining faithful to Christ and gaining life eternal. Let me pause here and ask you, what would you have done? Choices laid before you. Just stop preaching. And you can go home. You can go home to your wife, you can go home to your children, you can go home to your life, or you can rot in this prison cell. What would you do? Our Baptist forefathers endured those kind of decisions. And it's of those kind of decisions that Jesus spoke when he said, whoever would Save his life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Bunyan knew this was his moment. And he took it. He chose faithfulness to Christ. And so he was locked up in the Bedford County Jail. He said, If nothing will do unless I make my conscience a continual butchery and slaughter shop, Unless putting out my own eyes, I commit me to the blind to lead me. As I doubt not is desired by some, I have determined the Almighty God being my help and my shield yet to suffer. If frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on mine eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and my principles. Upon hearing the news of her husband's arrest, Elizabeth went into premature labor and her child died at birth. Bunyan was sentenced in January of 1661 to three months in prison, after which he was once again brought before the magistrate 
and he was charged to cease preaching and to attend Anglican services or else be exiled from England. Bunyan responded by saying, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel tomorrow with the help of God. And so the authorities refused to release him. They threw him back in jail and Bunyan would spend most of the next 12 years in the Bedford County Jail. In terrible conditions, separated from his family, sleeping on straw, in continual risk of illness and plague. Of all these hardships, it was being separated from his family that hurt him the most. Bunyan wrote that it hath often been to me in this place as the pooling of the flesh from my bones. Elizabeth was left to care for his four children without any support except that of the Bedford Church. Bunyan did what he could to provide by making shoelaces in his prison cell. His blind daughter would come visit him daily with a jar of soup and, and feel her way literally to his prison cell. This was the cost of following Christ as a 17th century English Puritan. Bunyan fought the fight of faith during those long years in prison. He feared, as all of us would, that he wouldn't be able to persevere. He, fa- he feared that he wouldn't remain faithful, that he would fail in the face of trial. But he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he found answers in two texts of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 1.9, he learned not to trust in himself, but to trust rather in God who raises the dead. And in 2 Corinthians 4.18, he learned to live upon God who is invisible. Therefore, Bunyan determined to make the most of his time in prison. He read. He poured over the scriptures. Of the Bible, Bunyan testified that never in all of his life had he, quote, so great an inlet into the word of God as he did while in prison. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made to me in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ was also never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. He preached to his fellow inmates, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote. His literary output while in jail was prolific. His mind just ablaze with creative energy. After about 1668, Bunyan's imprisonments became less and less frequent. During his times of freedom, Bunyan would preach at the Bedford Church And he was eventually called as its permanent pastor on December 21st, 1671. In 1672, King Charles II issued the Declaration of Indulgence, allowing Protestant dissenters some measure of religious freedom, and Bunyan was released from prison for good. Bunyan came roaring out of prison, preaching with a vengeance. He preached everywhere. He not only pastored the Bedford Church, but he ministered and preached in churches all over southern England and in London itself. His fame began to spread far and wide as he he possessed the God-given ability to hold congregations spellbound with his unique ability to communicate complex biblical truth 
in the common tongue. Preaching did not pay well, however, and so Bunyan continued to ply his trade as a tinker, which only added to his mystique. He was known far and wide as the tinker, the tinker preacher. Religious freedom for English separatists continued to be tenuous, however, and Bunyan spent another six, year, or six months in jail in 1677. And it was during his second imprisonment that Bunyan completed the Pilgrim's Progress. By the time it was published in 1678, Bunyan had already published some 25 works. He continued to write and to publish and to preach for the next decade, his most famous books being The Pilgrim's Progress, Parts 1 and 2, The Holy War, and The Life and Death of Mr. Badman. In addition to those allegorical works, Bunyan also published important theological treatises like The Doctrine of the Law and Grace Unfolded, The Holy City, A Defense of the Doctrine of Justification by Faith, Come and welcome to Jesus Christ and many, many more. By 1685, Bunyan was a national celebrity. He was preaching to crowds in the thousands in London itself. In late August of 1688, Bunyan contracted a respiratory illness, influenza or pneumonia, and he fell into a violent fever. On August 31st of 1688, John Bunyan died. And he was buried in Bunhill Fields in London. The minutes of the Bedford Church read like this. Wednesday, the 4th of September, was kept in prayer and humiliation for this heavy stroke upon us, the death of dear brother Bunyan. Just a few months after Bunyan's death, the glorious revolution erupted. Parliament overthrew James II They installed the Protestants William III and Mary II as king and queen. They passed the Act of Toleration, allowing for freedom for nonconformist Protestants. In other words, for 30 years, John Bunyan ministered under the shadow of persecution. He spent the better part of 12 years in jail. Yet he was faithful to the end, and he entered into the celestial city blameless with great joy. So what can we learn from the life, the legacy, and the literature of John Bunyan, who remains to this day one of the most important and influential Baptists in history? Well, there is so much to say, there's so much to glean, that it would be impossible for me to cover it in the 10 minutes I have left. So I think what I will do is to draw out six lessons from the life, legacy, and literature of Bunyan, ever so briefly elaborate upon those and hopefully just pique your curiosity so that you will pick up John Bunyan and begin to read for yourself. Or better yet, perhaps I will teach a discipleship class on the Pilgrim's Progress in the upcoming spring and we can walk through his masterpiece together. So here, by way of application, are six lessons from the life, legacy, and literature of John Bunyan. Number one, there is no salvation to be found in the town of morality. In the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, who is writing autobiographically, describes how Christian, who is 
laboring to get to the wicked gate with the immense burden upon his back, comes across one by the name of Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who tells him that there's a far easier way to have the burden removed from his back. For there dwells in the hill town of morality a man named Legality, who Worldly Wise Man assures him is a very judicious man, a man of a very good name, and he has skill in the helping off of men's burdens. Well, Christian thinks this sounds like a good idea, much easier than the long and arduous road on which evangelist has placed him. And so he strikes off for morality. And the closer he gets to the town of morality, the hill upon which it sits gets higher and higher and steeper and steeper until Christian is standing at the foot of a mountain that is flashing with flames of fire. And it's so steep that Christian is afraid that it's going to fall upon his head and crush him. This reflects Bunyan's own experience with his outward reformation. The mountain is Sinai. And it represents Christian's trying to climb, or Christian's climb represents a sinner who tries to keep the law and to make himself moral, to climb his way to righteousness as it were, but it cannot be done because the higher and higher you climb upon the ladder or the mountain of works, the steeper and steeper it becomes and eventually it will fall over on your head and crush you and your burden will still be upon your back. As we will read in Romans chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's a very, very fundamental Reformation truth that Bunyan weaves into the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress. Number two, it can be a long road between the wicket gate. And the cross. Once Bunyan was awakened to the gospel of Christ, he fought for assurance and for peace of soul for years. And that's not an uncommon occurrence. This was my own experience. That's the experience of many of you. And it's reflected in the Pilgrim's Progress. In that work, there is a lengthy delay between the time when Christian enters the wicked gate, representing his conversion to Christ and his entrance upon the straight and the narrow path that leads to life, and the time when the burden finally falls off his back at the foot of the cross, representing that that moment of the assurance of faith and of sins forgiven. There is only one place where freedom from the burden of guilt may be found, and that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is why throughout his life, Bunyan loved to preach and to write on the doctrine, the Reformation doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Because there is only one place where you will receive assurance of sins forgiven and peace of conscience. So let me encourage you to fight the fight of faith. Cling to the cross with everything you have. And like 
Bunyan and like Christian, press on to the cross until you know yourself forgiven and free from the burden that is upon your back. Lesson number three, marry well and put the kingdom first. It's astounding how God used Bunyan's two wives in his life. It was his first wife who brought into their marriage her gentle faith and her father's two Puritan books, which were Bunyan's first introduction to the gospel of Christ. And it was Bunyan's second wife, Elizabeth, whose steadfast faith helped Bunyan to persevere through those long prison years. In the summer of 1661, about six months into Bunyan's first imprisonment, Elizabeth, then just 20 years old, traveled to London to petition her husband's release. She appealed to the member of the House of Lords who advised her to petition the Superior Court of Bedfordshire. And when she did, according to David Calhoun, she was articulate, resourceful, and courageous, and possessed a working knowledge of the law which she had learned from her husband. When she finally gained a hearing before the judges, she was asked one question. Will he stop preaching? She responded, my Lord, 20 years old, mind you. My Lord, he dare not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. What need is there of talking then? There is need of this, my Lord, for I have four small children that cannot help themselves, of which one is blind, and we have nothing to live upon but the charity of good people. At this, Matthew Hale, one of the judges, had pity upon her and asked if she really had four children, being so young. My Lord, I am but mother-in-law, that is, stepmother to them, having not been married to him yet two full years. Indeed, I was with child when my husband was first apprehended, but being young and unaccustomed to such things, I, being swayed at the news, fell into labor and so continued eight days and then was delivered, but my child died. Hale was moved to compassion, but the other judges were hardened and they spoke against Bunyan. He's but a mere tinker. Yes, and because he is a tinker and a poor man, man, therefore he is despised and he cannot have justice. One Mr. Chester was enraged and said that Bunyan would just preach and do as he wished. To which she responded, he preacheth nothing but the word of God. Mr. Twisden, another judge, said in a rage, he runs up and down the countryside and doeth harm. No, my Lord, it is not so. God hath owned him and hath done much good by him. But his doctrine is the doctrine of the devil. My Lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it shall be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. John Brown, who was Bunyan's 19th century biographer, wrote, Elizabeth was simply an English peasant woman, but could she have spoken with more dignity had she been a crowned queen? So let all husbands and wives remember that marriage is not the end for which you were created. God is the end for which you were created. 
Bunyan and his wife had ample opportunity to trade their faithful witness to Jesus for the comforts of married life at home. And indeed, many would say, many have said, and I suspect some of us would say, that Bunyan and Christian, his autobiographical character, made the wrong decision and should have put off preaching in order to put their family first. That is not true. John and Elizabeth Bunyan made the right choice in putting Christ and his gospel and his kingdom before marriage and even family. Marriage is the picture of the gospel. And we must not flip the order and make gospel the picture and the servant of marriage. Jesus comes first. And John, I doubt very seriously, would have been able to persevere had not his wife been committed to that truth, and his wife would not have been able to persevere had not John been committed to that truth. Number four, don't travel the pilgrim road alone. John Bunyan was a preacher. He was an evangelist. He was a writer. But before all else, John Bunyan was a pastor. He loved his Bedford church where he had come to know Christ and his gospel and where he had led many others to Christ. The story of Bunyan's 30-year ministry in the face of persecution is really the story of the congregation's perseverance together. They loved their pastor. And they gave him his first opportunities to preach. They supported his wife when he was in prison. They visited him regularly, reminding him that though he was absent, he was still a member of their church. Bunyan's love for and his need of the local church is pictured at three key points in the Pilgrim's Progress. First, it's pictured in the Palace Beautiful, which sits atop the hill difficulty where Christian is welcomed. After first being examined as to his faith in life, he's welcomed in and he has fellowship with them around the table and he converses with them about the things of God and he finds rest for his body and for his soul and he's provided with, an, with armor for his body which will protect him as he continues his journey through the valley of humiliation and the valley of the shadow of death and in his battle against the dragon Apollyon. Bunyan would have died had it not been for the church. And Christian would have died had it not been for the palace beautiful. Second, it is pictured in the two companions which Christian, which Christian joins along his way. Faithful, who is martyred in Vanity Fair, and Hopeful, who helps Christian in Doubting Castle when they are prisoners of the giant despair, and who actually physically carries Christian across the river of death when Christian can't find his footing and he fears that he's going to be swept over and drown in the torrent. It's a reminder that you've got to have Christian fellowship. You need Christian friends. The role of the church is even more evident in part two of the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian's wife, Christiana, makes her pilgrimage along with a a congregation that journey together towards the celestial city. Finally, there are the shepherds on the delectable mountains who exhort and who warn Christian and hopeful about the dangers that attend to the road. And there's evangelists who at three points along Christian's journey points him to the right way. 
Those are pictures of pastoral leadership. See, you not only need the fellowship of your fellow Christians, you need faithful shepherds who will guard you and guide you and feed you and lead you. You need the church if you're going to finish the pilgrimage. Number five, don't waste your sufferings. Bunyan suffered greatly during his long imprisonments, and there were times when he was certainly tempted to despair, like Christian in Doubting Castle. He wondered if he was doing the right thing in putting his family in such a desperate situation, but he resolved that his suffering was from the hand of God, and it must be for some good and holy purpose. And so he put his suffering to work. George Whitfield said of the Pilgrim's Progress that it smells of the prison. It was written when the author was confined in the Bedford jail, and ministers never write nor preach so well as when they are under the cross, for the spirit of Christ and of glory there rests upon them. Indeed, persecution flavors all of Bunyan's writings. He wrote, Could we or we could not live without such turnings of the hand of God upon us. We should be overgrown with flesh if we had not our seasonable winters. It is said that in some countries trees will grow, but they bear no fruit because there is no winter there. Your sufferings, whether they are spiritual, like Bunyan's fight for assurance, or physical, like Bunyan's imprisonment, or emotional, like the pain Bunyan suffered when his daughter Mary died, they are designed by God for your good to produce fruit in you. So don't waste them. Press in to the sovereign goodness of God and he will make your sufferings a sweet aroma that attends your every step and your every word. Finally, love and live on your Bible. From the moment of his awakening when he overheard the Bedford women talking in the sunshine, John Bunyan was irresistibly drawn to the Bible and he just wrung it for every drop of truth he could get out of it. But it was in prison when the only books that he had were the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs that the Bible and Bunyan became as one. Scripture drips from every line of his writings. Charles Spurgeon famously said of John Bunyan that he had studied our authorized version, that is the King James Bible, till his whole being was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings continually make us feel and say why this man is a living Bible, Spurgeon said, prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows out from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the Word of God. And this, perhaps, is the greatest treasure of the Reformation. If the Reformation had not happened, Bunyan would not have had his Bible. And if Bunyan had not had his Bible, he would not have been Bunyan. All six of these lessons from the life, legacy, and literature of John Bunyan can be directly traced back to the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformation can be traced back to the grace of God in granting his church to recover the scriptures and thereby to recover the gospel. John Bunyan was a child of the Reformation and so are we. 
So let's revel in this truth. Let's pick up our Bibles. And like Christian, who started his pilgrimage with nothing but the book in his hand and the burden on his back, he set off for the celestial city. And let us go straight to the cross, where alone can our burden be removed. And let us then persevere to the celestial city. Where Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that these two men, Christian and Hopeful, went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured, and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. There were also that met them with harps and crowns, and gave them to them the harps to praise with all and crowns and token of honor. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in that city rang again for joy, and that it was said unto them, Enter ye into the joy of your Lord. I also heard the men themselves, and they sang with a loud voice, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And after that they shut up the gates, which, when I had seen, I wished myself among them. And when you read Pilgrim's Progress, you will wish yourself among them too. 